Welcome to episode six of Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Berlundblad, and me, Richard Allen. And so today's subject is going to be splinternets. We're going to talk about the future of the internet or the internets that we're looking at and try to understand what it is that governs the the forces that uh, that create the networks that we operate within. I think a good place to to start is is with a historical uh, look back at the concept of the splinternet. When it was originally coined, this term, it was coined by a guy called Clyde Wayne Cruz at the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank. And the way he thought about splinternet was that they would be an excellent response to regulatory pressure. You would just get a lot of different networks that would be regulated in different ways, that would set up their own frameworks, their own rule sets, and you get rule and regulatory competition between them. And that would be a way to deal with what he thought was um, the inevitable regulatory pressure that would roll in over the internet over time. He wrote this, I think, back in 1999, if I remember correctly. And and it it is sort of it, it had a very positive sheen to it this idea of a splinternet. But today, when we talk about the splinternet, we we talk about the balkanization of the internet. We talk about its fragmentation. So, what do you think? Is a is a splinternet a good or a bad thing? I mean, I think um, if we go all the way back, let, let's sort of remind ourselves and listeners so what the point of the internet was, and that was that we had lots and lots of different computer systems scattered around the place, and they all off. Or they all typically had their own protocols, uh, their own sort of sets of instructions for talking to each other. And sometimes they literally couldn't talk to each other. You couldn't get data from one computer system or network to another. And sometimes you could do it, but it used these very sort of expensive and clunky gateways. And so, I, I, you know, essentially, the splinter is almost saying let's let's reimpose the gateways that the the internet protocols were designed to overcome. So the internet protocols then say, and this is the world we live in today, that, that devices all exist in a single addressing space with a, a single network protocol, which means that I, I can build a device anywhere in the world or create a network anywhere in the world and connect it with all the other networks in the world. And as long as we're using the same protocols, we're going to be able to speak to each other, uh, the same protocols and the same addressing system. So, so um, that's why we built it, and that, that's the way we built it. You could, on top of that, say, well, e- even if we're going to use the common addressing system, we are going to choose uh, to only have a community that lives in a particular country or a community that signs up to a particular set of rules that sit on top of that global internet. And I think that, that's sort of where splinternets are. And there are a number of different drivers for why you might do that. Um Again, there are examples today. Uh, if you look at a service like Amazon, Amazon typically opens market by market. So it's it's uh, Amazon is a splinter net. There's Amazon UK and Amazon Spain and Amazon France and Amazon US, and they're kind of different Amazons because there's a whole set of complex regulatory requirements around taking orders for physical goods and shipping them to people. Um, so you can't just you know open everything up to everyone all of the time. Um, so, so I say, I think in a sense, the the splinternet is with us, as made visible in in some internet services that run over the broad internet. Um, is it is it desirable to go further in that direction or open up, you know, services to more and more people? I think the general trend has been to, to reduce the barriers. The more's the merrier. Uh, the services do want to connect to everyone if they possibly can. Um, you know, and, and they're balancing up all a whole set of different obligations when they do that. 
Um, but I think overall, it does feel to me like the the obligations that are tied to particular locations are going to increase, not decrease. And when that happens, it means that perhaps the Amazon model, opening up market by market very deliberately, as opposed to the Google model, we build a search engine and we say, anybody in the world, please come. Uh, I, I think the Amazon model may start to become more the norm. And then we will have something that is perhaps more like the splinter net that was being discussed so many years ago. And and the other question I think is interesting here is that you could arguably question if there was ever a global internet at all. Um, because this this idea of a global internet is is underpinned by by an, uh, a faith that anyone who uses the internet will use internet sites all over the world. But if we look at this realistically and we look at usage patterns, we know that language or what is sometimes called langscapes, so sort of landscapes of language, have a really restrictive uh, effect on who is using internet and where. You, you could even argue, although I would argue it's probably controversial, that that the Chinese language is more of a behavioral um, a behavioral director of Chinese internet behavior than the Great Firewall is. So I, I wonder if, if we are sort of, when we're talking about the splinternet, we're assuming this global internet that perhaps never existed. No, and, and I think in a sense it, it, uh, it doesn't exist at two levels. So, so one, one actually at the physical level, there's sometimes, a, I think, a misunderstanding that, that you know, there is, there is one entity that owns and runs all the infinite internet infrastructure and that's not the case the internet is a network of networks and there are lots and lots of little networks even down to your your house network uh up through you know perhaps your your uh, broadband providers network which is a lot bigger and then they're plugged into another bigger international network and so on until we get uh from the bottom up we form this sort of global internet and and within that you're right so, so some people who own some of those networks can try and shield off pieces. And the Great Wall of China is is the, the classic example where um, Chinese internet providers uh, have decided at the point at which they connect with the outside world that they will limit that connectivity and they'll stop certain things being connected in. But it is a really interesting question that you raise as to how far people anyway <laughs> would have crossed that barrier and sought that content out. I mean, certainly for, for some services, services like you know, Facebook and Twitter are offered in Chinese language. And so... So you can understand why they, in a sense, they need the firewall there to stop people who would otherwise be very comfortable, I think, going out and signing up for these services in their, uh, in, in, uh, their own native language and they would use them. Um, but the government's decided there's content on those networks that's not acceptable, and so they put the firewall up. But there's a bunch of other services where people just don't want to access them because they're not useful to them. And so I think there's a really interesting... Um, this difference when we're when we're talking about the impact of breaking things up into national internets, there's a really important difference between potential and actual. Uh, so what right. what the internet protocols do when properly implemented and when there's no firewalls put in place is they create the potential for any node on the network to access any other node on the network. So if I create a web server sitting here at my home in London and I uh, properly configure it, and I stick an internet connection in, it, it is potentially accessible to every other user of the internet anywhere in the world. So that's the potential access. The actual access is likely to be very small. You know, it's not once I plug it in, it's not going to be accessed by a lot of people. And so when we're thinking about the damage done, I, I think where this will become really contentious 
is where you're blocking actual connections that people do want to make and not necessarily at the point at which you're simply putting in place limits, uh, technical limits that mean people can't access things they never wanted to access in the first place. And language is a key part of that, service design, uh, say for things like e-commerce sites, you know, if you can't buy the goods in your country or they won't ship to your country, it's kind of neither here nor there whether you can access that site and so on. But there's also the question of what the equilibrium would be if we if we had all of the potential access that the internet could provide, and would how far would the actual usage patterns converge towards the potential access? Because we're just in the beginning, in many sense, we're just in the beginning of, of understanding how to use the internet and offering global services, and, and e-commerce is still a very, very, very small percentage of overall commerce. And so, so you could argue that, that we are underestimating the value of the potential internet uh, when we're focusing on the actual internet. Because if we only focus on the actual internet i think we, you could make a strong case that the the harm of a fragmented or splinternet uh, future is is limited to a few uh, multinational companies who want to be accessible everywhere whereas most other companies even e-commerce companies have at least a linguistic limit and often a national limit on what they will you know who they will deliver to but it's that it's that sort of there's potential equilibrium of the actual and potential that I think is interesting. We might actually have had a much more tightly knit research community or news community or, or learning community uh, if the fragmentation had not set in the way it has. What do you think? Do you, do you think there is a value in protecting a possible equilibrium there? I mean, I think so. And again, that is the, the core philosophy that that drove those who designed these protocols in the first place. They, they were very much coming from an academic research background. And I think a lot of their thinking was, you know, let's, let's uh, create the potential for people everywhere to share information with people everywhere, because that in, will in and of itself be a good thing and will generate all kinds of research and value that we, we didn't think was possible. And again, if you look, um, we must remember on our, our show, never to confuse the World Wide Web and the internet. Uh, Vince Cerf <laughs> invented the internet. Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, uh, as right. it famously says on their T-shirts. But again, if you look at uh, the Tim Berners-Lee's comments around the, the design of the World Wide Web, again, the philosophy was very clearly that if we make you know, all, all of the sort of online documentation linkable and connectable, it will create enormous value that we, 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 we can, you know, not realize today. So it creates this potential for globally linking up all kinds of documents and, and out of that will come something hugely valuable. So, so I think you're right that there is a risk uh, that we're going to, even before we've realized what it is, we're going to lose the value um, because we're going to, through regulation, other means, close down the internet spaces. And, and part of it may be this dynamic, and again, maybe something we we in particular would feel, given our backgrounds, that that there is a, a sort of natural instinct of politicians to want to clip the wings of the big global platforms, the Googles and Facebooks and things, and they they want to come in and clip their wings. But in so doing. It may be that they uh, end up, you know, damaging a lot of the potential that could have come from uh, other websites that um, other services that that truly would benefit from being globally connected. But now, because there's a regulatory regime that was brought in really to capture a Facebook or a Google, are now going to have to kind of stay out of uh, markets or are going to have to grow a lot more slowly uh, because they're too scared of going into markets where there's a, a strong new regulatory framework. 
It's almost articulated in the new European legislative proposals around the DSA and DMA, where the definition of a gatekeeper or a very large platform uh, seemed to suggest that if you are beyond a certain size and target the number of markets, you should be within scope for those extra uh, duties that the law wants to impose on you, suggesting that that's something that's specifically worthwhile to look closely at and perhaps you know also regulate a little bit harder. Whereas you could you could argue the other way around if you want to. And you could say, you know, any company that offers its services openly across a lot of different markets should be encouraged to do so because the actual value of that, if it's realized into to a future, would be great. Um, but it's very clear that I think there is a, and it's also, I mean, you could argue that this is part of a larger trend. You could say, look, the internet has just become very important. And when it becomes very important, you should expect a reversion to the mean. It can't be its own jurisdiction, like David Post used to say, you know, back in the 1998 papers that he wrote with David Johnson, the internet should be its own legislation, it should uh, jurisdiction, it should be its own domain. It became enmeshed in society in such a way that sovereignty just had to be reasserted. So maybe that time with the global internet was just a short window before we got a reversion to the mean and sovereign national networks instead. Yeah, I think we should also be candid that in a sense, when we're talking about the global internet, we're talking about the American internet. And and this sovereignty question is critical. So, so I have used an analogy because I like my analogies of, you know, internet services are like um, islands that spring up out of nowhere in the sea. And, and a lot of the big ones that we talk about are islands sitting off the shore of California. Uh, they're actually governed by California or US law, um, and other people from around the world can come and visit those islands. Uh, but when they visit those islands, they're effectively sort of operating in a US law governed space. And yes, as more people visit those islands and spend more time on them, naturally, there's an interest in their own government to say, whoa, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, I'm not having you operating under US law. I want you operating under German law or Indian law or uh, Bolivian law, whatever it is that is the local code for that individual. And, and those laws may be around speech in different countries have different rules about what you can say they may be around trade they may be around tax they may be national security you know when, when you're on the american island uh, i actually need to be able to see what you're doing um and no i'm not going to go to the americans and say you know fbi will you surveil this person i want the right to carry out my own surveillance even while you're on that american island so, so i think there's a lot of uh, uh that sense of just yeah as as it's got bigger um, we need to be able to have people working within our legal code. And the interesting thing for me, in a sense, is how long that American model has has been able to survive. Mm. Um, and, and now I think some of the challenges you see to it are, are essentially related to other sort of geopolitical moves that are going on. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not a, a country. So, so when, when you know, people like the European Union say, we're unhappy with the way the internet is running and we want to impose our rules. It's not against an abstract internet. It, it really is against American internet. It's saying we don't want American law to apply. We want EU law to apply. And and the de, de facto position at the moment on things like privacy is that, you know, American internet companies have felt more uh, tied into US law than they have to European law. They may have done some moves towards compliance, but definitely sort of second thought rather than their first thought, which is how do I comply with US law? Um, so again, I, I find it fascinating uh, how some of these sort of tensions are playing out. Um, 
in the UK, uh, it's interesting written on this that you know the UK broke out or left the European Union because we wanted to make British law and not be governed by EU law. I'm starting to sense a similar view by some of the the people in that political movement to say, well, now we want to break out of the global internet because the global internet means being run by US law and we want it to be governed by British law, and so they're willing to pass legislation that would effectively you know, create a separate internet space for the UK. And they don't care if that breaks the global internet. But 10, 15 years ago, I think it would have been a very different debate. But now it's like, no, you know, British users should be subject to British law when using internet services. And if foreign services don't like it tough, they should get out of our market and we'll have British services that will fill the gap. Um, and and that's really, as I say, quite surprising <laughs> that we've got to that stage. Um, but, uh, well, from a technical point of view and from an internet community point of view, but from a political point of view, if you say, well, you know, that really echoes all the arguments around Brexit. Um, so if they're prepared to break trade with you know, the European Union, why wouldn't they be prepared to break trade with uh, the United States uh, in, in the person of Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc.? And I think this gets worse with the pandemic, because what happened with the pandemic was that a lot of countries were forced back into a position of sovereignty because they needed to fix their own protective personal equipment, their own medicines, they needed to take care of their own citizens. It was a very local problem, in a sense, that brought uh, havoc to almost all global institutions. And you can imagine that having an echo in the internet world as well, where people will say exactly what you said, look, it affects our citizens Is of core concern to our economy so we need to make sure that we have the jurisdiction and the ability to control it and and it's 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 the democracies that are now looking at this are just you know a little bit behind the curve because russia already has a law that says essentially that it needs to be able to operate its internet entirely independent of any interconnection outside of the country but so tracking that or tracing that trend thinking a little bit about it um and and speculating say 10 years hence what do you think this will look like what do you think? The, it will Is there a pendulum that will swing back and we'll all start to believe in globalization again? Or are we going back to the pre-internet world you described with, with the non-interoperable networks, but this time consciously designed and desired by policymakers? So, so if I had to place money, I would place money on us ending up with federated internet services. And uh, in other words, there will be... Um, services will be offered sort of lots of different countries around the world and they may be under the same brand and umbrella but they will be legally distinct entities uh, offering services you know able to comply in individual countries and and the kind of model you can look at today is actually if you look at a service like Netflix which is dealing in licensed content it essentially needs to to have lots of different entities that license that content and sell it into particular markets. There, there isn't a, a global licensing system for that, or, or uh, um, uh, music services will do this. So, so services that are offering licensed content will already often operate under the hood in some kind of federated model where they're doing their, their legal compliance and their licensing country by country. Um, I say e-commerce sites is another example of where they will do that. Uh, uh, they'll have separate entities in each, each country. I think the thing that will be novel is that this will start to apply to what you might call global information services. So the, the services like uh, social media, like search, that 
previously had been thought of as, say, in this sort of classic model of I just turn it on and invite the whole world in and that's it. And and I'm going to do that basically under US law uh, and see how far I can get. I, I think that may become more and more limited. And so a service will have to think hard about where it wants to open up, when it wants to open up, what the compliance structure is. I mean, you mentioned uh, Russia, you know, that they've got in place a whole set of local requirements that that they haven't pushed too aggressively to date, but they might push more aggressively. Um, Turkey's just come up with a scheme where it wants to have local representatives of companies on the ground and, and essentially create a a situation where it's got an entity it can go after for compliance reasons. Germany already has this under under their famous Network Enforcement Act. Uh, part of that is to say companies must have a, a legal representative who's accountable on the ground in Germany. Um, uh, Australia is top of the news at the moment for for um, uh, trying to create a particular regime for the licensing of news content in Australia. Um, so, so as you see all of these kind of local requirements build up, the logical thing for any business to do, I say, is to create a local entity that that can do the compliance work. I mean, the law may literally require it to have a local entity. It may not, uh, as in the Turkey law, or the Germany law. You can't you can't say no. Somebody in the US is doing this. They've got to be in Germany or Turkey. You know, they've got to be local. Um, so you're going to have to create that local entity. By the time you've done that, you may want then to make sure that all of the liabilities that go with that are are contained within a. A, a local container, um, and again, there'll, there'll be uh, challenges for for services that generally operate on a cross border basis. Uh, for the stuff that goes across borders, I have to figure all that stuff out as well. Um, but you can probably go quite a long way by saying, "Look, this is Facebook Australia, this is Google Canada, this is Twitter Russia," and and uh, these entities all roll up into some larger entity, and they may feel quite unified to a consumer, but under the hood. You've got a federated structure in order to manage these regulatory and liability issues, and, and it's interesting because if you, you you mentioned search, and search has always been top domain uh, federated, which means that you have Google.se or Google.co.uk, etc., and and that in turn has also been uh, enabled because we we talk about this global internet, but the internet has has always also been schizophrenic about this. It's had top domains that have been national, for example, .com, .org, .net have been the, the large international ones, but almost all of the larger uh, information services, except possibly Facebook, actually have also been using the top domain system to nationalize their services, not least because of the language that you need to change when you when you move into smaller markets. And so, so it's, it's, it seems as if the internet, and I, I remember the Yahoo case, and you probably remember this well too, where, where they brought in experts who said that with the IP protocol, you can actually, with a very high degree of precision, make sure that people in France do not see content that's prohibited in France. And so the the reality is that the current version of the internet seems to at least have had a fallback option or even been prepared for the kind of federated future you describe. The question then becomes, what about new technology? Because internet is not an endpoint. I refuse to think it's an endpoint yeah. in our technological evolution. So you see the evolution of new decentralized models. Tim Berners-Lee is working on something. There are a couple of other people. You have the blockchain models. Do you think that this federated pressure that you're describing, the pressure to sort of reassert national authority, will actually be something that makes the internet evolve into a more decentralized model and again makes it harder to nationalize? I, I mean, I think um, 
What's interesting is, so, so the internet is, essentially is a common addressing space where every node c- can talk to any other node. So it's the network protocols, but there's this common addressing space. I guess that it does beg the question as to how valuable the common addressing space is once all the services are organized on a national basis. And so if all of your major services are organized on a national basis, then uh, maybe it doesn't matter anymore that then they're within a, a space where they can connect with every, everybody outside and everybody outside can connect with them. Uh, maybe it's okay to sort of build a fence and, 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 and you know, literally seed from the public internet. I think where our conversation started, the notion of the splinter net was essentially that, that you have a, a different competing addressing spaces. So a space within which, you know, uh, pe- people can connect but when they connect, they're only connecting to that network, and they're not they're not connecting to all of the rest of the internet. They're just connecting to um, like a large home network, like an NAT. Like, exactly, like a large home network. Exactly the point. So, oh yeah, or, or um, you know, if we think of sort of t- t- telephones, you know, t- telephones are national numbering systems that choose to interconnect with each other. Now, if you if you had a country where nearly all the calls are local, maybe you say <laughs> we're just not going to bother recognizing everybody else's telephone numbers. We don't need it. Um, and so that I think is where you've really then separated off, and th- and there is a I, I think a risk that. Um, uh, how do we describe it? function follows form in this case or form follows function i'm not sure which way around it is but we'll that where where you know um because we've now created this national set of services uh we feel more comfortable now uh disconnecting from the global internet and that's certainly explicit in the russia uh, uh, russian approach the russian russians have said we want to know that if the rest of the internet blew up uh, that we could survive in Russia, and therefore we want Russian services, and we want to know we could switch over to a Russian-only addressing space and not worry about the rest of the world. And China internally effectively has that today, where where um, you know a, a lot of the core services are all within China. They don't really have to care too much about what goes on in the rest of the world. They can still carry on and function. So there's a sort of um, security aspect to this as well of saying, you know, we we could switch over to a purely national network and not lose too much. Um, so, and I think that is yeah, the pressure for that is going to grow. So you're getting you're getting the pressure from all these different directions. I mean, what's lost is uh, classes from a consumer point of view, you lose choice, uh, you lose convenience, and again, I, this echoes the Brexit debate. The Brexit debate was, you know, do you want more sovereignty at the expense of the convenience of being in the European Union? And that's what we find: it is less convenient to be outside. Uh, there, you, you can't go to the same vendors you could go to before. There's a lot more paperwork and bureaucracy. Um, so, so, you know, the cost to us. Of going in this direction as consumers will be less choice uh, and probably more friction and, and more frustration when we're using internet services. If you're in a really big national market like China, that or may the not, US, or the US, very few Americans actually go outside of the US internet, which is an astonishing number. First, when I saw it, but I think it's below ten percent of American users who go outside of what's offered in the US market. In the US internet, yeah. So you you'll be fine. Uh, and actually, interestingly, again, I mean, that one of the, the things about Chinese companies, they're, they're very good. They, they've got their own domestic market, um, but they've also been able to operate internationally. And, and the whole spat last year with the former U.S. president and TikTok is actually quite instructive on this, that, that he essentially said to, to um, the owners of TikTok, ByteDance, you've got to create a U.S. entity. In other words, TikTok has to become a part of the U.S. internet to be able to operate in the U.S., uh, which is kind of extraordinary. And TikTok were 
seem sort of pretty open to some kind of reasonable solution that would get them to that. Not not a crazy one, but a, a reasonable solution. So, so say, yes, US would be able to say to any internet service in the world, um, uh, you know, here's our market, here's the conditions of entry. And maybe it is you have to create a US entity. And most companies, British companies, Swedish companies, Chinese companies are going to say yes, because <laughs> they want to access the US market. Try doing the same thing in reverse. And Sweden says, hey, internet companies, you can't operate in Sweden unless you jump through <laughs> all these hoops. And they're going to shrug their shoulders and maybe not bother with the Swedish market. So so I think that's, I mean, Sweden, in a sense, I think may, may benefit, from, again, from the European Union, because it may well be jump through these hoops and you can access the entirety of the European Union. Um, but it's your small... A country typically that hasn't got domestic internet services and wants them, where I think you'd certainly feel a, a, a lack of choice if they became uh, over-assertive. And so again, the balancing that you may end up with, back to geopolitical questions, is you know there'll be places like the EU, which I think will be quite assertive, but but quite helpful in the sense it will say jump through these hoops, the DSA, Digital Service Act, all this stuff. And you can operate across all the European market, and most global internet services will go fine. I'll I'll jump through the hoops. I'll operate there, um, and then I think you'll have a bunch of smaller countries that will either be in the US orbit or the Chinese orbit, where where they'll just have to take what they're given by the US or the Chinese internet services. They won't be able to insist on lots of localized representation or compliance because the services will just go I'll not bother. And then you've also got a, a bunch of countries that are um, uh, going to be quite powerful and significant, Brazil, India, Russia, Turkey, I think in particular, um, where they're big enough markets in their own right, they're quite assertive, and they would be quite keen not to be dominated by any of the US, the EU, or Russia, uh, any of the ES, uh, EU, US, or China, rather. Um, so uh, they're, they're potentially going to end up, I don't know, with their own you know, strong domestic players. Um, uh, but Brazil has shown itself perfectly willing to take on the US over regulatory issues. You've pointed out Russia already has quite a lot of stuff in place, uh, and Turkey is, seems increasingly moving in that direction. Uh, and India, again, it's just such a huge market with a fantastic domestic ecosystem that India, if it wanted to go it alone, you'd have to say would have a pretty good shout of doing that. Yeah, and but there are different ways in which this can happen. I think you you just you describe uh, a, a traditional way, a very traditional way, which is the trade policy way to impose foreign ownership limitations and essentially say if you want to operate in our market, you need to have a joint venture, which is something that's quite common in in many Asian countries, but many other countries as well. There's a trade policy way to do this, where you sort of really focus on ownership and operation of these entities of these companies, and then there's this other increasing trend that we've seen about data localization, which is sort of a circum, sort of you're trying to get to the same thing. You want local investment, you want local control. And uh, what you're saying is that we have digital sovereignty. And so we want to make sure that the data about people from Germany is in Germany. Um, and it's quite interesting, actually, because we should come back to this question of, of how many splinternets will there be? And when we talk about the European Union, we usually think that if you just, you know, if you comply with one of the European Union countries, that's fine. But when we talk about data localization, I think there's a good chance that, that Germany, for example, would be be less comfortable with the notion that, yes, we have localized all of our data in Europe and it's all in Hungary. Yes. Yeah, I mean, data localization, again, um, we, we talked earlier about the, 
the, the, these sort of sovereignty questions, and I use the island analogy. So, yes, to, to extend that, you know, um, if Germans are going on holiday uh, to, to a US island uh, that's under US jurisdiction, there are t- two problems with that from a, a security point of view. One is that the German government finds it difficult to get access on what the citizens were doing there if they were breaking German law. And, and uh, two, uh, they fear that the US authorities will find it relatively easy <laughs> to get uh, data about what the German citizens were doing, um, you know, when they're on that US run island. And when they're arguing for data localization, they'll typically use that second argument, say, well, we want the data in our country to protect it um, from uh, foreign uh, law enforcement agencies or foreign interference and foreign surveillance. Um, in reality, it's a mix of both. Actually, they're just as interested in the domestic surveillance uh, that they, they can do. And so you're right, yes, um, to, to domesticate the data or to have the data brought back and then have it sit in a country, and a third country, uh, is not of value unless you completely trust that third country. Um, so, so, you know, if it's Germany, if the German user data were held in Hungary, the question then is, do the German government trust the Hungarian government not to spy on Germans improperly and to provide the Germany to the data to the German authorities whenever they want it? And, and that will depend on, you know, intra-governmental relations, which change over time. I think the current uh, German and Hungarian regimes, I, I'm not sure there is sufficient trust for them to feel comfortable. But at other times, there may be, and between different countries, there could be. And, uh, and, and what I want to get at is, I think that the mechanisms of federation will matter a lot. If it's foreign ownership limitations, if it's data localization, if it's general digital sovereignty, it will the the different kinds of mechanisms deployed to to sort of push for a federated system will determine the end state that we end up with. If it's a European Union internet, a US internet, and then a Chinese internet, and then uh, everyone else, uh, or if it ends up being closely held national internets, for example. And it seems to me that at least one uh, particular part of the the splinternet discussion, and that would be the the discussion about China and the US, uh, suggests that there will be two big internets. One that's sort of generally governed and under the influence of the United States, and one that's generally governed and under the influence of China. What do you think about that? I mean, I I think that's sort of where we are today and where we're headed absent some significant changes. Um, uh, There are probably two blocks that could make significant changes. Um, One is the EU, which again, through its actually state protection policies, ironically, um, can have quite a sort of uh, uh, imperialist um, effect. And so, so in order to do business with the European Union, you must store data according to uh, European Union uh, protocols rather than US or Chinese ones. And that's already we see that has an effect. A lot of countries in Latin America, in particular, have adopted. Data protection rules explicitly designed to be compatible with the EU and make sure they have access to the EU market. Um, uh, countries in Latin America are probably closer to the Europe in terms of things like content regulation. So, so Europe's going to play a part, but how effectively? I think there's a really interesting open question because whilst it, um, you know, is certainly do- doing a lot around regulation and is is working very hard to export its regulation, there is still this. <clears throat> From a technology point of view, there are relatively few European champions. They haven't got the super uh, aggressive and successful 
you know, global platforms that we see coming out of other regions. So the second region I'd watch that might might upset this US-China uh, sort of geopoly would be India. Um, and India in particular, because it is incredibly strong in terms of software development, uh, the skills it's got, the people that are coming online there. Um, and so if you were looking for somewhere to say, you know, where might we see the, the next, um, you know, Facebooks and Googles from one side and on the other side, the next sort of uh, TikToks um, and the next WeChats, actually India may be the place that generates the technology that that will um, be so attractive that uh, countries will want to buy into it or people will want to buy into it. And, and remember that India was actually the first country to ban TikTok. Um, in, in, if you really look at the history, they were the first one to put forward a TikTok ban. It was even quoted in the US executive order, which I found fascinating because the US was taking their lead from, from the Indian decision to, to take down TikTok and a number of other apps. Exactly. So, And I, I, I think that's right. And I, I actually also think that if you look at the US and China duopoly uh, or the two the two internets the US internet and the Chinese internet i think there is a there's a lot to be said for for um, for several internets cut in different ways depending on the uses i think you'll have a commercial one i think you'll have one that is more oriented around social media and information and you can already today think about this as a sort of separate stack on top of the internet where you have commercial services and you have industry and you have trade which i think are going to remain Main pretty globalized. And then the closer you come to the political sphere, uh, to media, for example, the more fragmented the internet will be. So it's not as if it's not as if you'll have the internet writ large be split up into pieces, but you actually have to look at it as a lot of really, really finely stacked layers. And the layers will be available in different ways across the network, it seems to me. Yes, and I think that's exactly right. And and so again, we've um I think there's a risk that we've sort of generalized uh, the internet too much into thinking everything's the same. And, and actually, again, if we go back to the original philosophy of the internet, it wasn't just about the internet. It was a lot of the people who were involved also believed in things like, you know, free access to information that you wouldn't have copyrighted content, you know, and there's been a sort of long running debate, but, uh, but part of the assumption was we want all the information to be free and freely accessible all the time. And so, you know, a lot of opposition to any idea of putting up any kind of barriers, including commercial ones. Uh, there should be no paywalls. This is still a subject of debate of whether internet services should facilitate when you when you search for something on Google. If it's behind a paywall, should Google take you there and also encourage you to to bypass the paywall, or should they deliberately downrank content behind paywalls because it's offensive and against this this sort of open internet principle? Um, so so I, I think we've sort of, in a sense, been living a myth, <laughs> which is that uh, we have this sort of uh, space, which is as the orig- originators of the internet wanted it to be, <laughs> which is everything open all of the time. In reality, it's already got lots of closed bits, and over time, what we may do is recognize, as you described, in, in much more detail, okay, which bits are intended to be fully open, which bits are intended to be closed, how are they closed, what's the nature of the gatekeeping that you need in order to access that bit of the internet. Um, so I think that would be more the norm. I think one thing I, did, you know, I think we should touch on before we leave, leave the subject is that the role of um, app stores in this architecture, mm. because one of the things that's changed, again, if we go back to the original internet, uh, the early internet, I connect up, I've got my IP address, I can reach everybody else. I mean, 
even before Google, there were lots of sort of clunky ways, but you kind of needed to know where something was and then off you went and, and found it. But everyone could connect to everyone. The web came along, you know, still the idea was if you put up a website, everyone connects to everything um, and it's done from your home connection. We now have a lot of our use of the internet intermediated by app stores. Um, So the activity that most of us do most of the time is on phones and uh, the choice of, you know, we're not sitting necessarily typing in a website anymore. The choice of service we're using will depend on what's available in, in the app store. Um, and there are already quite significant national variations, um, and those may increase uh, over time. So, one you know, natural function if we're going into this sort of more national federated model is, uh, you know, the app stores actually are most perfectly designed to enable that. Um, I, I have a national, typically phone connection with a national phone number. Uh, that means that the app store provider, whether it's Google or Apple, knows pretty accurately where I am. And they can offer me the right uh, uh, set of apps for the location I'm in rather than uh, just give me all of the internet all of the time. Um, Mm. And again, very controversial, but I think that's... uh, No, but I think that, I mean, that's the argument that Jonathan Strain made way back when in his book, The Future of the Internet and How to Stop It, where he said that, look, there is this pendulum swing in technology architecture from walled gardens like America Online. If you look at America Online, it looks very much like an app store (laughs) with a few, few, and and then over to, to sort of a more open infrastructure and then back in to that more walled infrastructure again. And I I mean, one of the questions I, I want wanted to get at when I asked you about the centralized solution is that it seems as if this pendulum swing is now firmly back in the in the walled garden uh, corner uh, but the original internet came about for a reason there was a a series of people who really felt the need to design something that was connected globally and had very very low barriers to your point every barrier was seen as as illegitimate even copyright or privacy for that matter was originally not something that 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 was sort of regarded very highly when you when you built these systems and so i wonder if you you can't imagine a sort of swing back into the decentralized and open again and that the, the federal model might be the push that makes people go away and think about how can we build something that is truly outside of the control of governments who, who want to come in and and continue to determine what we can see and what we can read yeah I, I think the, um, the there is a natural human instinct to create that so it will be created and I think it's an interesting question as to how much governments will be worried if most of the population is corralled into the official approved spaces, if a few people outside of that, again, because I love my analogies, I often think of, you know, a big city. Uh, I live in a big city that's in London. That's exactly the analogy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the, I, I think that's a brilliant analogy. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No. Yeah. And so, I mean, the government is going to keep all of the main streets safe. Uh, the businesses are going to be legitimate. Everything is going to be, you know, work properly. If, if it didn't, uh, it would be a disaster. But the expectation is that government, you know, keeps the city orderly. But within the city, there are some, you know, rough spots. There's a few wastelands and dodgy streets and dodgy places. Um, and, and so, yeah, the internet, if the internet ends up like a big city, uh, it, it is it potentially going to look more orderly. The main streets and thoroughfares where main, most people go are going to be better regulated, if we can use that framing. Um 
but it, are we going to have a city where there's no, you know, there's no sort of dodgy places and dodgy clubs and uh, sli- slightly sort of uh, illegal stuff going on? No, <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of that would be a like, boring city too, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> it would be you, a dull you city want for- your Yes, you want your illicit clubs where you can go and listen to music. Yes. So uh, um, another angle of this that I wanted to sort of touch on briefly, because it's so timely now with the Australia discussion, uh, is if this federated model that you describe uh, comes true, it seems likely that uh, companies will increasingly be more like Amazon and say, look, we just can't be in that market or that set of markets because it doesn't make sense to us from a cost yield equation, right? If we look at this, the cost benefit of being in these markets is just we have to hire a lot of people to do content moderation in a very small language, for example. That's going to be very expensive and I'm not sure that we can keep the quality we want in our services. So uh, I remember Google deciding to withdraw Google News from the Spanish market uh, when the when the Spanish uh, ancillary copyright law uh, hit. Uh, I remember at the time that it was seen as a as a big deal that a, a company was was leaving a market. But now we have a discussion about Australia as well. Do you think it will be will we see more of this of of the global internet companies consciously withdrawing from markets because it doesn't make sense under the federated model? I mean, um, I think we we will if the trend is towards regulation, like the Australian regulation or other models. So, so for example, one of the things that um, I think is not in the current British proposal for uh, online safety legislation, but was there for a while, was criminal penalties for executives if you get things wrong. Um, and again, I think you would have experienced that at Google with uh, Italy and privacy law and one of your colleagues sort of being being taken to court for, for criminal acts. And that does make you think, again, if, if a country yeah. says, you know, and they're entitled to, it's our sovereignty, uh, we're going to impose a set of regulatory requirements that are like super burdensome, going to cost a fortune. And if you step out of line, we're going to throw your executives in jail, <laughs> then that is going to change the equation, and the company's you know, going to sit and say, "Well, is it worth being in that market?" And so that's part of the political decision. And and again, you get into this unfortunate dynamic when a company says, "Look, um, I think the the law that you're proposing is excessive." Then the government's reaction is, "Well, you know, we're entitled to do this, and don't blackmail us. You're just blackmailing us to try and weaken the provisions." Well, no, you're you're just giving an honest assessment of you know what it is that makes a, a market sufficiently reasonable for you to be in there um and if not you'll have to be outside i i I mean just one twist on that is some of the regulatory frameworks and in the uk law there's an element over this of um some of the regulatory frameworks essentially says you know any company anywhere in the world must comply with our national regulatory framework whether or not they're in our country that actually becomes like super impossible um so as a there are frameworks where you can consciously decide uh, do I or don't I want to be in that market? There are other ones where if, they, if they're saying, you know, it's going to apply whether or not you've consciously decided to be in the market, but just because one of our citizens happens to have used our service, well, at that stage, you have to do the full technical splinter net. You have to say, look, okay, if that's UK law. If I could be put in prison because somebody from the UK came to my service and my service was not compliant, I'm just going to have to make sure I block you know, anybody from the UK from coming to my service. And then you're going to have to start building firewalls everywhere uh, to corral things. So fortunately, at the moment, most of these proposals say only if you're very consciously seeking customers in a country will the regulation apply. Yeah. Um, but then that does give you the choice. Will I consciously seek customers in that country or will I 
ignore that country or even shutter it altogether at a technical level. And there, there are two legitimate choices, right? A polity has the right to decide what kinds of services are legally offered in its country. That's that's completely uncontroversial. But it should be equally uncontroversial then that uh, a company has the right to provide its services or not provide its services in a country. Uh, so that company can say, look, under the existing conditions, I don't think I have a viable business model in your country. I think that the challenge is when the assumption uh, is that, and I think there's an assumption here that's connected back to this dream of a global internet, that you should be under a duty to provide your services because the internet is global. And how dare you not be present in our market and just do what we tell you. You have no choice but to be present because the internet is, is you know, the promise of the internet is that it should be available to us all. So it's, it's almost as if that promise is then also something that these companies are held liable for. That's right. I think there also may be, and I speak as a politician here, but a, a certain amount of um, cowardice on the part of politicians that, that that um ultimately i mean that they are saying we we get to decide what services people in our country get to use and if they're popular services and and we the politicians have decided to impose a regulatory regime that they find impossible and are now withdrawing we don't need to blame us as politicians we want you to blame the company so <laughs> the company could carry on offering its services it's just being unreasonable well no I mean, exactly the company has a right not to offer the services if the conditions are not acceptable but that's very hard because then the politician has to say you know people of britain i've decided you can't access these services anymore uh, it's on me if you've got a problem bring it up with me and, and, and it comes back to it comes back to something that you've said repeatedly in in these podcasts too and that is the the incessant conflation of the internet with the platforms that you sort of you believe that they're the same so essentially the politician is saying you're denying us access to this global internet that we're all supposed to be a part of whereas they're saying no we're just denying you a commercial service that can't be offered under the conditions that you're currently uh, presenting Exactly, and you and you have a choice. If you if you uh, want our service to be there, um, we need to talk to you about the conditions that you're setting for it. And actually, again, I mean, Ch- China is an interesting example. Um, Google went through the the process of discussing with the Chinese government what would be acceptable. It thought it had an arrangement that was acceptable. It turned out not to work in the way they wanted it to work because of actions by the Chinese government, and they withdrew. But that's sort of a very explicit example, perhaps of what may increasingly happen with more and more countries. And and whilst it's sort of seen as shocking and exceptional when that happens with China, um, maybe let's say that Germany, uh, for privacy reasons and speech reasons, companies are going to have to have a conversation with the government of Germany. Um, in, you know, and we may feel differently about the German requirements from the Chinese ones at a human rights level, um, but it will still be a conversation about conditions for market entry. Uh, and platforms will have to decide whether or not they they feel either willing or able to meet those conditions to enter into that market. And as I said, the the losers in the end, I suspect, will be smaller countries. Um, again, huge echoes of the Brexit debate here. Of like, you know, do you want to <laughs> you want to be in the package? Do you want to be outside? But smaller countries, I think, will really struggle. Um, and consumers, and and this the the you know maybe this the the angle to sort of close on is we're talking about it in this abstract sense. But what we're talking about is services that ordinary people access and depend on. Uh, and benefit greatly from as far as we can see i mean yeah and so if your government has created regulation with all the best will in the world and again not necessarily questioning their intention but the regulation you know is too burdensome 
Um, and now you've gone from having and enforced through the App Store. You've gone from having the App Store in your country offering you 50 great apps because you, you, you've not just got TikTok, but you've got loads of other short-form video apps, some of which will be the next TikTok, and they're great. And now all of a sudden you've got like three short-form video apps that are all provided by national providers that may be okay, but may also be a bit clunky because they're not getting any real competition from anyone else. They've got the market cornered. Like, and and you know other people who've got access to these great new technologies, but they can't. you can't have them in your country. I mean, that's going to be an interesting dynamic. And I think that's the one, in a sense, I think that's the one that's held governments back the most um, to date. Mm. So a government like Russia has passed laws that, that on the face of it, look, you know, you've got to localize all your data, you've got to do all these things. It hasn't been really, really aggressive enforcing it against the mainstream players. It has against smaller players. And I think one of the reasons it's held back is because it knows that it would have to deal with quite a lot of consumer concern. Uh, it's and, not going to make it And uh, frankly, the, the online economy is now at the point where it can unleash a lot of the productivity growth inherent in the investments in technology. I mean, the solar paradox was always a huge problem for information technology, where you said you can see computers everywhere but in the statistics. But now I think we will start to see um, productivity growth in the statistics because people are building business models around the technology. And that's the point, ironically, at which the internet fragments into splinternets, where its real economic value could finally be unlocked, and then I think when we look back at this, there's a there's a uh, there's a there's a risk that we look back at this as one of the large economic tragedies of our time, where we sort of really shot ourselves in the foot uh, because we had accessible to us this potential economic growth inherent in a global network that we yeah. just said no to. I mean, yeah, forgive me, but I I can't help um, sort of echoing back. Yeah, and imagine the EU single market is just about poised to deliver the amazing benefits, uh, and somebody decides to pull out of it and do something uh, different. <laughs> um, there yeah. are echoes there, but I mean, you're right. We've created these <laughs> these tools that have these potential because they are frictionless yeah. and open and highly highly. Sort of competitive in the in the broadest sense because a lot of people can come into that space very low barriers to entry and um they can really can deliver um and and you're exactly right the tragedy of what we may be seeing is at that very point we start to shut it down uh and and break it up into small spaces just one thought on that though is to date there's been a lot of have your cake and eat it which is you know um, russia could shut down its own internet and russian companies who are building internet services could still sell their services in America and all around the world and make great good money out of it. I mean, that's what Chinese companies have been doing. Um, their domestic market is secure, but they're not prevented from going into the outside market. Interesting would be if if we do go into this world, the point at which we say, people start saying, okay, Russia, you've decided to close down your internet. And that means that Russian services can't uh, be made available in other countries when they're going to block your mm. services. We get into that tit for tat. That's when we get a real poverty of access because those economic effects are not being felt to say in part because of this, that the fact that the that everyone, even in closed societies, can use the open internet. You know, I- I- Iranian uh, senior figures are present on on global uh, services, global social media services, even though Iran itself is a shutdown economy. Now, the point at which we start uh, saying, okay, tit for tat, <laughs> you know, if, you're, if, you're, if we're not in your markets, you can't be in ours, that's when I think you'll get that real impoverishment and uh, we'll, we'll lose a lot of the economic benefit we could have had. 
That's an excellent point. Well, thank you so much. This concludes the episode six of Regulate Tech that we can find on your website with the address. is regulate.tech. Exactly. And keep any comments you have coming and, and ideas or suggestions for other topics. Uh, let us know. And thank you so much for listening. Bye now. Bye.